Good morning. Isn't this weather great? Who are the real fans of this weather? Oh, good, quite a lot of us. I love the fact that it's kind of predictable now. It feels like I've moved to the Mediterranean, you know, and you can organise a barbecue for a week hence and you know that the weather's going to be good. Isn't it wonderful? So, um, I also, I just before I start, I feel like I need to get a confession off my chest. You know, the Bible talks about confessing our sins to one another. Am I the only person that didn't watch the England match yesterday? <laughs> no, two or three of us. Okay, maybe we should form our own club. <laughs> I feel like a bit of a heretic. Tim and I were speaking at um, a church weekend away yesterday in Wales, and um, they stopped the, you know, the weekend factored in uh, the, the football match, but even then, I just couldn't bring myself to watch it, so I've confessed it now. Sorry. So as Tim said, we're continuing um, our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. For those of you that are visiting or that are new here this morning, uh, we've been tracking our way through uh, parts of the Gospel. And this morning's passage, as it came up on the sermon rotor, is a bit of a whopper. It's a bit like going to Burger King and ordering the big whopper with the double burger, the sort of cheese, the bacon, the double fries, and the biggest drink, fizzy drink that you can have, and then trying to eat it uh, in a very short period of time. It's a big passage, so let's get into it. If you've got your Bibles, um, I want you to turn to uh, Mark chapter 13. The words are going to come up on the screen, and I'm going to read it. And... uh, This is Jesus talking to his friends and his disciples, and we're going to read the whole chapter. So let's just get our seatbelts on, and off we go. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said to him, uh, Teacher, look at those magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at those great buildings but they'll be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple, and Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, tell us, when's that going to happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? And Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They'll deceive many, and you'll hear of wars, and you'll hear of threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You'll be handed over to the local councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you're arrested and you stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it's not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his own brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where it should not be. Reader, pay attention. 
Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter. For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world. And it will be never so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he's shortened those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets, they'll rise up and they'll perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I've warned you about this ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the furthest ends of earth and heaven. Now, Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that the summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation won't pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will not disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too. You must keep watch for you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping. When he arrives without warning, I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch for him. Well, that's a cheery passage, isn't it? (laughs) That's a cheery passage, isn't it? This is Jesus speaking in full prophetic mode, preparing his children for what lies ahead, for what is ahead of them. But it's not the kind of chat from Jesus, unless you're, I don't know, standing in maybe a different place, that leaves you with a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Anyone here get the warm fuzzies listening to that passage? It's not the kind of passage that you want to hear that makes you feel better after, you know, a tough week at work or facing some challenging life circumstances. And there's no indication from the passage here that Jesus has supplied his disciples with cocktails and canopies to help them, you know, receive the message uh, in a slightly easier way to make the moment a bit more comfortable. So if you ever wanted, if I ever wanted, if we ever wanted confirmation that Jesus isn't in the business of making us all feel good, whatever the cost, this is it. 
Jesus' top priority is not to make us feel good. He's more interested in preparation than pretense. He's more interested in preparing us, preparing his loved ones, preparing his friends for what lies ahead rather than pretending about it. I reckon, I've had myself thinking about this this week. Obviously, I've been thinking about it a lot and really wrestling with this passage. And God has really spoken to me and to my heart. And, you know, we're praying, I'm praying that God will speak to you in some way this morning. I reckon if Jesus had been on the leadership team of a local church, and this is what he'd come out with, you know, in a leadership team meeting, I reckon he might not have lasted too long. I reckon he might have been deemed, you know, the negative one. Or, you know, the one that just didn't have faith, or the one that was no fun, or the one that was a bit too pessimistic. I don't know. But this isn't the kind of passage, you know, we read before we go to sleep at night, is it, to make us feel better? Or, you know, I don't do that anyway. It's one of those passages that it's got stuff in it that actually most of us don't want to hear. I don't know about you, but I include myself in that. And nobody wants to preach about it, let me just tell you that. (laughs) But I got the short straw. Least of all, preach about it on a sunny Sunday when the weather's amazing out there and, you know, England are through to the the next round, the semi-finals, and we're feeling good. But hey, this this is what Jesus has led us to this morning. This is the passage for today. So I want you to keep your Bibles open. As I've said, I've wrestled with all kinds of stuff. It's a huge passage. You'll be pleased to know we are not going to unpack it verse by verse. There are commentaries around if you want to do that. Uh, And I want to highlight something before we uh, get into it. And then I'm just going to look at just a few uh, small bits of it. I think it's important to flag up uh, at this point that there is some disagreement as to what Jesus is actually talking about in this passage. The general understanding for years and years, and some of you will have headlines in your Bible, signs of the end times or whatever, is that Jesus is indeed referring to the fact uh, and referring to signs and events that will precede his return to the earth, his coming back to to earth. However, in my research today, of course, I've come across some sort of um, slightly different perspectives. I've listened to a talk by somebody who has a, has a great teaching ministry that many of us will be familiar with. And actually, his perspective on this passage is that actually it's all about the events that were to precede the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. And he makes some really good points about it. He's a theologian. Uh, and that therefore these signs that are being spoken about in the passage are not really connected to the physical return of Jesus to to earth and to the end times. And as I said, there were some credible elements to his, his discussion and his presentation. However, it did require, some parts of it required some mental gymnastics. In verse 29, Jesus says, you can know that my return is very near. However, The most compelling reason for me, so I just want to share it with you because of the angle I'm going to take on on this passage, to stick with, as it were, conventional wisdom that this passage is talking about events uh, that will precede the coming of Jesus, including, I believe, the fall of the temple and some of the specific events related to that. You know, he's very particular about Judea and fleeing from Judea, that kind of thing. I think it's a both-and thing. And my reason for taking that that view is... uh, because we are meant to interpret the Bible in the light of the Bible. You know, whenever we say, find a passage in the Bible that we're struggling with, we should always look at what, what does the rest of the Bible say about the kind of thing that this passage is talking about. And in this passage, 
Jesus is responding to a question from his disciples. We read it right at the beginning. His disciples are, you know, mesmerized by the architecture at the temple. And Jesus says, don't be too impressed, boys. It might look an amazing building, but boys, this building is going to end up in a pile of stones and a heap of rubble on the floor. And this certainly came true in AD 70. And they, they ask him in private, you know, away from the crowds, when's it going to happen? Tell us how we can know it's going to happen. And Jesus begins the answer that we're reading today. However, in Matthew's gospel that describes the same scenario, but with a little bit more detail, his disciples begin the conversation about the temple. They ask how we know it's going to happen, but then they add on to that same question. And when will you return and what will be the signs of the coming of the end of the age, the end of the world as we know it? So Matthew records a a, a broader question of the disciples that Mark only narrows to the temple. And so I believe that this passage, which is reiterated in Matthew, as I said, is talking about the whole lot, the signs before the end of the temple, that the temple must fall before Jesus comes again, and that there will be other signs that we've talked about that will precede his return. So that's what I believe, and that's the angle that I'm going to be talking, taking just for the next few moments. So let's look at this passage. As I said, we don't have long to go into detail, and it's a super long passage. Uh, so I just want to, to answer two questions this morning in the time that we've got together, and they are these. What can we be sure of from this passage? What can we be sure of, and what does that mean for us? Because there's all kinds of things we could talk about and discuss that aren't totally sure because it's metaphorical language or it might happen once or twice or three times or whatever. But what can we be sure of and what does that mean for us today in, in Cheltenham, in 21st century Cheltenham? So first thing, what can we be sure of? Jesus is coming back. We can be sure that Jesus is coming back physically to earth. Don't know, has anybody seen Incredibles 2? No, I discovered it's the, the biggest grossing animation uh, in the history of the world so far. I can't wait to see it. I love the Incredibles one. It's one of my favorite films. Obviously, nobody here has seen it. Maybe we're loving the sun and the football too much. But there's all kinds of sequels, aren't there? There's, there's Mamma Mia 2 is out this summer as well. Anyone else planning to see that? Yes, a few more. Okay, not many, but a few more. I want to go and see that one as well. But, you know, we've got Jesus returned to earth you know, part two. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is definitely coming back. He makes it clear to his disciples, and the Bible makes it clear in all kinds of places, that there will come a day where he arrives back on earth, and everybody will know about it. Everybody will know about it. And the world as we know it will come to an end. It's it's a promise. It's a declaration and it's a promise. And the world will come to an end as we know it in that moment, not because some catastrophic event has happened, you know, triggered by something out of control, but because God decides to intervene and bring the age to an end. And so all of the injustice, all of the evil, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the stuff that we just would wish would disappear now, it will end when Jesus comes back to earth clearly and visibly for all the world to see. So right now, there are people, maybe we've got them in our offices, maybe we've got them in our families, maybe they're our friends, the people that we're witnessing to, and they're like, well, where is your God? You know, we can't see him. Where is he? 
What's he doing? If God were alive, if God was real? You know, we've all heard those kind of questions. At the moment, Jesus' presence isn't visible to everyone. It's visible to those who have eyes to see. But one day, this passage is saying, we can be sure that he will appear. He will come back to earth in a way that every eye will see him. Everybody on the face of the earth will see him. Which is quite a mind-blowing thing to get our heads around, isn't it? Apparently, 3.2 billion people watched the World Cup four years ago. I'm sure the number is going to be higher uh, in a cup, uh, the World Cup final. I'm sure the number is going to be higher in a couple of weeks' time. That's a phenomenal number of people on the face of the planet watching one game of football. But the Bible's saying everybody, every eye will see Jesus. And not just see him as he was before in his humility, but in his glory as a majestic king surrounded by angels. Surrounded by angels, breathtaking as king of the universe. However, once he has arrived, it will be too late to make any more decisions. Decisions about doing life with him, decisions about how we might serve him or how we might express our love for him. At that moment, time will be up. You know, for many of us, it may be up beforehand. Tris has just shared about, you know, this friend who was taken to be with the Lord at the age of 49. We don't actually know how long we have got. Jesus is talking about how long the world has got. But there is a moment when time will be up and there will be no more opportunity for decision. But... Verse 32, verse 33, let's look at it in the passage. Jesus is saying, no one knows when this is going to happen. So next time you see somebody with a billboard or somebody on the news going, the end of the world is coming, go and get your baked beans supplies from the supermarket because Armageddon is going to happen. Come back to this passage. Nobody knows. So if somebody's claiming to know, they must be wrong. And you absolutely know it's not going to happen then. So the first thing we can be sure about from this passage is that Jesus is definitely coming back. The second thing we can be sure of from this passage is that before he returns, a number of things will happen. There's a number of things will happen. In fact, he says that the things that will happen and that have to happen will indicate that his return, this end of this particular season and time, is near. And he identifies four of them, as far as I can see. He says in verse 7 and 8, and then again in verses 17 to 20, between now and then, there will be much suffering. You know, when we look on the news, and when we see the effects of earthquakes and famines and wars and nations rising against nations, Jesus said it was going to happen. And he says it twice, verses 7 and 8, verses 17 and 20. There will be much suffering, not because he wants it to happen, but because we're living in a broken world on a broken earth with broken people. He also says that between now, when he's speaking, and his return, there will be much persecution. There will be much persecution. Verse 9, he says it, and then again, he says it in verses 12 to 13, if you've got your passage open, you know, you've got the Bible open, have a look at it, see it there in black and white or in red letters if that's the Bible that you're reading. He even says there will be misleading preachers and teachers and prophets. 
that have the potential to deceive, to mislead his own people, his own children. I mean, that just seems unimaginable, really, that that is possible. But this is what Jesus is saying. And he says that the good news must be preached to all nations. The good news must be preached to all nations. And notice that he describes all of these things as being like birth pains. Now, can I just say, I am an expert on birth pains. I have four children. My first child was 10 and a half pounds. My third child was over 11 pounds. I am an expert on birth pains. Let me tell you a few things about birth pains. You've heard it from the experts. It is pointless and stupid to pretend that when you are in pain in labor, you are not in pain and everything is fine. It's a completely pointless exercise. What you want when you're in pain and the baby isn't coming yet and you're wishing that you could die or that you could kill the man next to you. <laughs> what you need is help. You need encouragement. You need whatever will strengthen you. And hopefully you need some pain relief. I'll tell you something else about birth pains. They're not over quickly. For most people, they're not over quickly. They go on and on and on. When I was in labor with Tom, it was on the uh, evening of the Ryder Cup. Those of you that are visitors will have picked up that we're interested in sport in this place. We didn't actually live here at the time. And Tim was looking at his watch and thinking, well, the Ryder Cup final's happening and I don't know who's winning and, you know, whatever. I think I'll just pop out and get my radio. So he brought the radio in and then the midwife said, oh, how lovely, some music for Hills. You know, that'll really help her and calm her down. <laughs> and he switched on the radio and listened to the results of the Ryder Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember. I don't even know who won. <laughs> and the third thing about birth pains is that they get worse and worse and, uh, and nearer and nearer together until the baby is actually born. And I think one of the things that Jesus is saying here is, do you know what? These things that he's describing are going to get closer and closer together like contractions, like pains. They're not a one-off event. That was an earthquake. And now we've done the earthquakes. It's like earthquakes will begin to be seen to come closer and closer together. There will be more wars. And, you know, that's, that's the analogy of birth pains that he's talking about. But he's also reminding us with that metaphor that there's a baby coming. That's where our hope is. Because do you know what? Birth, labor might be awful. And I'm sorry for you men who've you know, never been in a labor ward with uh, a, a woman, a wife, uh, to sort of give you a window, a very small window into it. But in the end, when the baby comes, you forget all about the pain. You hold this bundle of joy, this new life, this, this little thing that you absolutely adore that you don't really know in your hands and you forget about everything else. And Jesus is reminding his disciples, he's reminding us that there's this thing coming. There's this life coming. There's this season coming when there will be no more pain. When we will forget about everything that happened on earth to rip our hearts to shreds or that has demoralized us, discouraged us, that we would regret that we struggle to live with. It will pale into insignificance when his kingdom comes in all its fullness. 
That's the joy that we're looking forward to. The life that we've been promised with him after the end of this age. And it will be a million times better than our best ever experience, our best ever moment, our best ever time here on earth. These things must happen, second thing. Thirdly, he makes it really clear, something else we can be really sure of from this passage, is that those who endure to the end will be saved. He's picked a word here, a deliberate word. Those who endure until the end. Those who trust me and obey me and keep trusting me and keep obeying me to the end will be saved. And there's an implication, isn't there, in that statement? That it's about finishing life, finishing the race with Jesus that counts, not starting it. Lots of people can start a race. But it's those who cross the finish line with him that will be saved. Really challenging stuff he's talking about here. When the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about salvation in three tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. And that's really challenging for us humans who live on earth, limited by the concept of chronological time, things happening in a linear order to get our heads around. And I'm not going to explain it or delve into it this morning. But this is Jesus' statement. And he's saying that perseverance, keeping on, keeping on, standing firm, clinging to him, trusting his ability to cling to us, is what is necessary uh, for the end of the, to get to the end of the race. And then lastly, fourth thing that we can be, be certain of from this passage and for me, this is, has been the one that God has spoken to me about this week, most about this week. There is a real danger that we might fall asleep. There is a real danger that God's people, that you or that I, could fall asleep. I, uh, a few weeks ago, I found a little street in Cheltenham. Any of you that are, don't live in Cheltenham, um, Cheltenham is one of the worst places, in my humble opinion, for parking in this country. I'm convinced that there's some kind of conspiracy to get all the cars out of Cheltenham and, you know, to make parking absolutely impossible. And uh, the other week, I found this little street somewhere, because I am somebody that, you know, has a slight sort of inner desire to, to buck the system and to, you know, beat the, beat the authorities. And I thought I'd found this little street and uh, there weren't very many cars on it, and there weren't any lines on the road, and so I parked my car there, and I was like, yes, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone about this, because this is going to be my new space. That's the really selfish part of me. And um, anyway, a few weeks later, guess what? I got a parking ticket through the post. And so the, the sort of warrior, the fighter within me, rose up, and I thought, I'm going to fight this, because there were no signs, and there were no lines on the road, and... And I went back to the place that um, I parked my car. And unlike most of the streets in Cheltenham that have signs on the side of the road where you park, this just had a sign at the entrance to the road. I'm sure it was there so that people wouldn't notice it. <laughs> and I didn't notice it. So I ended up having to pay the fine. And in the end, I missed a warning that didn't have a particularly significant consequence. The Titanic was warned six times about icebergs that were in its projected path. The Titanic ignored that warning, and we all know the consequences of that devastating event. This 
passage really is a warning. What Jesus is doing here in this passage is warning. He's warning his children. He's warning us. He's warning those he loved because there are dangers for us while we continue to do this journey on earth. Let's acknowledge this this morning, that Jesus is a God who warns. He does so much, but warning is actually a blessing. You know, warning is for our protection. And if he, ta- if he says something six times, we need to work, uh, take it really seriously. And towards the end of this passage, he says, watch out, be alert, stay alert, be on your guard, don't fall asleep. He says it six times. The Titanic had six warnings. You know, what's he trying to say to us? He's, he's trying to warn us that it's possible for us to fall asleep. And while the Bible says that God grants sleep to those he loves, that is not the kind of sleep that Jesus is talking about here. Physical sleep is one thing. Spiritual sleep is a whole nother kettle of fish. And Jesus is warning us about falling asleep spiritually. And it's dangerous because spiritual sleep is the kind of sleep that disconnects us from him. That, that, that numbs our hearts. That, that suffocates our hunger, that disconnects us from his life, from his purposes, from his love, from his ways. And he's saying, people, he's saying, my children, my kids, I love you, but watch out that you don't fall asleep. And it's his warning to his church. And I think it's as relevant today, it's as relevant today as it was when he spoke these words to his disciple 2,000 years ago, because we're living on the same earth we're living on the same earth and we are, have the same you know, human weakness, as it were. And he's saying, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. He's saying, Steph, don't fall asleep. He's saying, Hills, don't fall asleep. He's saying, Tim, don't fall asleep. He's saying, Erica, don't fall asleep. And maybe he's trying to say that to some of us this morning. I've been really challenged about this this week. What does beginning to fall asleep look like? Well, humanly, it's really obvious when you begin to get drowsy, isn't it? We had a staff day away on uh, Thursday, and uh, we were coming home in the car, and uh, I was sitting next to uh, somebody in the back uh, as we were driving back from a hot day. You know, we'd been in the sun, we'd been playing some games, we'd been eating food, and the guy next to me was drowsy, and he got a bit more drowsy. And the first time was, you know, <laughs> and that happens when you begin to nod off, and you know that you're about to nod off, and you try really hard then just to pretend that you didn't nod off when your head's just... I once did that on a train, and I found myself dribbling on the shoulder of the person next to me. <laughs> it's really easy, isn't it, to see what happens when you begin to nod off physically, humanly. Spiritually speaking, maybe it's not quite so easy. What does beginning to nod off what does feeling drowsy, what does looking drowsy look like spiritually? I don't know. But here are a few things that I think it might look like. Slipping in your prayer life. Slipping in your reading of the Bible. Indifference to what the Bible actually says when you do read it. Slipping in your willingness to make sacrifices for others, maybe. Slipping in my standards. Slipping in my sensitivity to sin, to the stuff that God says, I don't want that for you because it wrecks you. Slipping in my sensitivity maybe to the price that sin has, the cost that sin brings to those who don't know God. 
maybe falling as beginning to, to be drowsy, falling asleep, looks like excusing that stuff that actually God is putting his finger on. Excusing my dif- disobedience, excusing my lack of appetite for, for God and all that he has for me and his kingdom. I think falling asleep can look like a lack of fear of the Lord. Not fear as in I'm scared of him, but fear as in respect and awe at who he is. Maybe being drowsy might look like slipping in our desire to witness to others about their eternal destiny. Jesus is quite clear about it. It's those who stick with him to the end that will be saved. You know, what is our, what is our concern like about for those who don't know God? Maybe it's a slipping in our concern for those who are falling asleep, but who do know him. Here are three characteristics about sleep that are dangerous. Firstly, you don't know that you're asleep until you wake up. (laughs) That's fairly obvious, but you don't know that you're asleep, do you, until you wake up. Secondly, you don't do the things when you're asleep that you would have done if you were awake. I I don't know if God was playing a little trick on me this morning. I'm not going to really put it at his door, but... I slept through my alarm this morning (laughs) and I woke up late and I didn't do some of the things that I planned to do first thing this morning when I woke up. And here's the thing that we also is so true about sleep. We hate the sound of an alarm, don't we? I have an allergy to certain alarm tones (laughs) that have woken me up for seasons in my life. We don't like the sound of the alarm. We want to reach over and hit the snooze button and just have a bit more sleep. I wonder what we're like, how we respond to the people that might come alongside us and, and challenge us or, you know, either directly or indirectly by who they are and the, about the way we're living or about our relationship with the Lord. I wonder if we want to switch over and just, you know, push them away and put them on snooze. I don't know. Why is he warning us? Why is he warning us? Because in these end times, we stand the chance of becoming more and more drowsy. You know, let's acknowledge that. We there is the propensity for us to become drowsy and give up on the work. He talks about his servants who he's left in charge to do his work, to give up on the work that we've been given to do, not to push in, not to step forward, not to contend, not to pursue a deeper relationship with him, not to pursue the lost and to witness to them. But Jesus says one day we're going to stand before him and give an answer for the account that we've, for the life that we've lived. Billy Graham used to say that all the time. Such a ministry that man had, such a a shame in one sense that that ministry is over. But we are going to have to stand before the Lord and give an answer one day for the life that we've lived, for the choices that we've made. Let's just, you know, acknowledge that again this morning. And I think there's a connection here between these things that must happen that Jesus is talking about and drowsiness. I think there's a connection between them. I think suffering has the potential to cause drowsiness. You know, when we labor under disappointment and, and disillusionment and distress and despair, all of that stuff has the, the capacity to make us sleepy, to numb us to God because life is painful and we protect ourselves and we put up walls and maybe we step back from him. Jesus talks about it in the parable of the sower and he says that trials, you know, have the potential to burn up those plants that don't have particular roots. He talks it in a different way then. There's the potential for drowsiness when we're going through suffering. I think the threat of persecution has the same effect. You know, I don't know about you, I have huge empathy. I have huge sympathy for Tim Fallon. 
you know, who bless him, was hounded and hounded and hounded about what he believed. And actually, you know, he ended up resigning, didn't he? And, and not ended up having the courage by his own admission to, to nail his colours to the mast because of the persecution of sorts that is out there. I mean, we don't live in, in, with the kind of physical persecution that so many do in so many parts of the world. And we need to be, remember to hold them up in our prayers. The Bible tells us that. But we have our own version of it because we can feel it. I don't know about you, but I can feel it. I can feel the temptation not to open my mouth, not to say the thing that might cause a bit of controversy or might cause a bit of an offense or might speak up for Jesus. Because I'm influenced by this kind of thing too, but I think it can make us drowsy. Jesus, I believe, is making a link between suffering and drowsiness, the threat of persecution and drowsiness. And I think also, and let's hear this in the way that I mean it, and not in a critical way or a judgmental way, but Jesus is connecting also the threat of deceptive preaching to drowsiness. There is the potential for us to hear preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus that has the capacity to send us to sleep. So I want to say specifically, watch out for teaching that presents a gospel to us that immunizes us from suffering, that immunizes us from trouble, that somehow we fall for a a promise, a lie that isn't true, that we will not suffer, we will not struggle because Jesus will just help us through it all and remove it. He will help us, but he says there will be struggle and trouble while we're on this earth. And our hope is not in that he will remove it while we're here, but that he can make something incredible and redemptive and powerful and good for us and for others out of it. Let's watch out for teaching that suggests that we can love our communities for, to life without preaching the gospel. Jesus says that the gospel must be preached. And let's watch out for teaching that says we can love our communities to life and avoid all persecution at the same time he says it's not possible and let's watch out for teaching that leaves us believing that we can excuse or ignore our sin that the choices that we make that the habits that we continue to leave unconfronted that they're not it's not going to make a difference to us because God loves us Let's watch out for the teaching that leaves us believing that we can do life on our terms, in our way, and pray our little prayers, but it won't make any difference to our lives, and it won't make any difference to our futures, and it won't make any difference to our relationship with God, because he loves us and he's gracious. He is gracious, and he does love us passionately, and this is why he's warning us. Because sin and our disobedience and our resistance, when we get into those places, they just, it numbs our hearts. It's not that God steps back from us. It's that we lose our sensitivity to him and his spirit. And he doesn't want that for us. God doesn't ever retreat from us. We're the ones that retreat from him without realizing it. That's what happens when we begin to get drowsy. And Jesus is saying, stay awake. Be alert. Be on your guard. Keep watch. But here's the good news. Because there's always good news. If you feel, if you know whenever we get to that place of recognising that I'm feeling a bit drowsy spiritually, it's really easy to wake up, isn't it? It's really, if I'm sitting on the sofa and I can feel sleep beginning to overtake me, the easiest thing to do, well, it's not easy actually. It is easy, but it's not comfortable. I think that's what I want to say. The easiest thing to do is just to get up and change position and just go and sit somewhere else. 
It's really easy to do, but it's not comfortable because I've got to embrace a bit of discomfort. And if we feel that we're getting drowsy, that we're finding ourselves drowsy spiritually, we just need to change position, which might mean like choosing to hang out with some people that you know are going to wake you up by who they are or what they're going after. It might be fasting from something for a season, you know, stepping into that place of discomfort to wake, to, to make sure that you become fully awake. It might be doing something that you've resisted doing before and you've kind of been justifying not doing. It actually might be making a life change decision that's a bit bigger, changing something about your life circumstances that would enable us to wake up. God will show us. But it's not difficult to wake up. We need to recognize that we have the potential to become drowsy. Here's the other bit of good news. Jesus is for us. Jesus is for us. He is for you. He is for me. He is for his people. He is for our church. He's on our side. And I know this is a really, you know, I think this is a really challenging passage. It's not one that we hear or probably turn to very often. But the reason he warns us is because he's on our side. He's for us. He's not the one trying to steal our joy. He's not the one trying to suck the life out of us. The enemy does that. But the enemy does it with his fiery darts. And Jesus is saying, watch out for them because fiery darts send you to sleep. They send us to sleep. He knows where the pitfalls lie, where the traps are. And as all good parents do, he's warning us. We're on our way, friends. We're on our way to the most monumental feast. To the best party that the world, that the universe has ever seen and will ever see. It's going to be outrageous. It's going to be amazing. And there will be no superlatives in the English language to describe it. But that party and that feast is on heaven, is in heaven. And we've been left here on earth for this season and we've got work to do. So Jesus is saying in this passage, I don't know what he's saying to you. I know what he's been saying to me. In this passage, he's saying, stay awake, friends. While you're there, stay awake to life. Stay awake to my love. Stay awake to my power. Stay awake to me, and you can have life in its fullness on earth and life in you know, its kingdom fullness in heaven. So why don't we stand? And I know in a, in a few moments some of us are going to again have to collect children. But let's just take a moment to respond All right, why don't you close your eyes and let's just welcome whatever it is that the spirit of God wants to do in these remaining moments Father, we thank you that you're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. And because you're a good, good father, you're willing to tell us the things that we don't necessarily want to hear, but we need to hear. And we thank you that that is a manifestation of your love for us, your grace being worked out in our lives. We thank you. And we just pray in this moment, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Come, Holy Spirit. 
And in this moment, just show us, Lord, how you're wanting us to respond to what it is that you've said this morning. you know how God is inviting you to respond and you know that that involves um, a specific decision in some way whether it's taking something seriously in your life that he's put his finger on this morning whether it's choosing to wrestle with him for what this might mean for you if you know how he's inviting you to respond this morning I just want to invite you to come down to the front because I think sometimes taking a physical step, just like you know, getting up from a sofa and moving around is a physical thing, helps you know, what's going on internally. I believe that's true spiritually sometimes, that when we take a step to the front and, and, and make a sort of physical declaration with our body about an intention that we're wanting to make, God honors that and there's a significance in it. So if you know how God is wanting you to respond this morning, what he's inviting you into, I just want to invite you to come to the front and... Uh, if some of the church family could come to the front and begin to pray. You might want to put a hand on a shoulder very lightly this morning because <laughs> it's hot, but it's a little bit cooler up the front. Just come to the front. Jesus, just make your way down. If you're here this morning and you don't have a sense of certainty about going, being a guest at this party, being a guest at this feast that Jesus promises in heaven. Tim talked this morning about God wanting to firm up some things this morning. If you're not sure, if that's you, and you're not sure where you stand this morning with Jesus, you're not sure whether you've really made that commitment to do life with him, I want to encourage you to come down to the front on my left-hand side and somebody will pray with you because it's something you need to do with somebody else. It's a prayer that you need to pray with somebody else. So if that's you, come down to the front on the left-hand side. A few weeks ago, Gareth had a word about somebody with a, a problem with their elbow, and they, that, the woman was healed that morning. She's not here today to give her story, but if you're here and you need physical healing in your body, God wants to heal you. God is in the business of healing. So I want to encourage you, if that's you, come down to the front, tell the person who comes to pray for you what your physical condition is in a very, very short phrase. And uh, we want to pray for your healing uh, with boldness and confidence. Two other things. I have this sense that there are one or two here and you, you really know that you're drowsy. You feel it. And that drowsiness feels so heavy like sleep that it's threatening to overwhelm you. Maybe it feels like numbness. Maybe it feels like disconnection. I think there are times when actually it's so overwhelming we, we find it very difficult to get up and move and do something different. And I know in my own life, I've had to have somebody pray for me to take the fiery darts out of me that are making me drowsy. And I think there's one or two here, and actually, you have got fiery darts from the enemy in your back. You have come under assault, and somebody needs to release you from, uh, from those this morning. Again, if that's you, come down to the front. And if you're here and you know that you need that deposit of hope that Tim was talking about this morning, living hope, a new dose of hope, 
God wants to release that into your heart today, I believe. If we could have some more people to come and pray. Can we have some more people to come and pray down on my right-hand side? Can we have some women to come and pray? If you've got kids in uh, Kids Church, it would be important to go and bless their leaders and retrieve them uh, pretty soon if you haven't begun to make your way. But if that's not you, um, I'd love to encourage you to stay. Um, In fact, I actually think, uh, and forgive me if this sounds a bit brutal, that there'll be some people here this morning and actually what you want to do in the light of a massive message like that is just go away and sort of drop it and leave it and forget it and park it somewhere more comfortable. Um, And I don't think God's inviting us to do that. And if you're not sure what to do with it, because it's so big and in a way so challenging, then take that as a prompt to do something. And that something might well be, don't leave before you've allowed somebody to pray with you. You're not sure how to respond, but you just know you've heard something big and significant and it's for you. Well, that's okay. Remember, this is, uh, comes from a heart of love, a warning from a heart of love. I just want to add, I had the sense that there's somebody who knows that they've walked already through some warning signs. You've walked past some warning signs and you already know that and you, did, you haven't paid them attention. I think God has got your attention this morning and um, I want to encourage you to receive prayer before you leave.